0: If you want proof that something has gone wrong in America, look at ticker tape parades. No, really, look at ticker tape parades. The man who makes that argument? Peter Thiel on Uncommon Knowledge, now. Welcome to Uncommon Knowledge, I'm Peter Robinson. Peter Thiel graduated from Stanford, then from Stanford Law School, After joining one of the most prestigious law firms in New York City, he decided not to practice law, returning to California where he co-founded PayPal and made the first outside investment in Facebook. Since then, Peter has invested in companies such as LinkedIn, Palantir, and SpaceX. He has also become a public intellectual, speaking often about the United States and the world. This past autumn, he co-taught a course here at Stanford entitled Between Stagnation, And progress. Peter, welcome back. Thanks for having me. From your remarks to the Atlas Society this past November, quote, we haven't had a single ticker tape parade in New York City for an individual in the 21st century, close quote. I thought that must be mistaken. So I looked it up. And you were exactly right. In the 21st century, New York has thrown parades for groups the Yankees, the Giants, The most recent parade, which took place this past summer, and I'm quoting from the official website, was for healthcare professionals and essential workers. 20th century honorees, Charles Lindbergh, Amelia Earhart, General of the Army, Dwight Eisenhower, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Michael Collins. All right. From a ticker tape parade for an individual such as Charles Lindbergh, to ticker tape parades for healthcare professionals. Why does that matter? Well,
1: it's uh, it. Um, you know, I'm not. I'm not sure. There's something. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm massively opposed to the ticker tape parade for healthcare professionals. Although it is kind of a it's not massively unionized government racket, and right. one can be um, suspect of, of of them being sort of praised to the high heavens in quite quite the way they were in the last few years. But uh, but I think. Um, I think the thing that's missing is very striking, and it is somehow we um you know there, there's something about our society that has become more collectivist in all kinds of ways and uh and the you know the part the part of it uh and there's a part about that's you know anti individualism anti individual achievement um and there's the intellectual part that you know I was probably the most concerned about in those comments is right. um, against heterodox thought and um and so if you if you put an individual on too much of a pedestal and they have ideas that are different maybe that's that's too dangerous and I'm tempted to say it's it's a risk we do not want to take there was something obviously with with uh, Charles Lindbergh where it, it went a little bit haywire and um, and so there in was the late 30s th- he, and, he, he was
0: rooting for Germany essentially
1: Or it was neutrality yes but but there's right. something there's something about uh, so there was something about um, elevating individuals that uh, that is that, a risk that is dangerous and and uh, but, but maybe maybe there's an even greater danger in a society where um, heterodox thought is no longer allowed.
0: All right. You talked about our collectivist present. Once again, from your remarks this past November, quote, there are two reasons I, this is you talking, I, Peter Thiel, there are two reasons I always describe myself as a libertarian. One is good and one is bad.
1: Well, Let's the, hear them. Well, the, the good reason is that, uh, is that I believe in, um, you know, I believe in a lot of, Libertarian classical liberal values. I think we should have less government. You know, m- more individual rights, freedom. There's a lot of aspects of the the program I'm very sympathetic to, and uh, and then the the bad reason is that I think it's um, it's always a somewhat cowardly way of saying that you're a loser. You're never going to win, um, and uh, and you'll be left alone. And so there's a you know, there's a Silicon Valley context where um, it is much worse to be a Republican than a Libertarian because if you're a Libertarian You know, you're
0: you're permanently fringe.
1: You're permanently fringe, and you're never going to threaten anybody.
0: I see. I see. Um,
1: It was you know, it was um, it was uh, it was perfectly acceptable acceptable for me to support Ron Paul for president in 2008 and 2012. Much more dangerous to support Donald Trump.
0: Right. Okay. Okay. You talk about in again in those remarks. You talk about the difference between a 50.1 percent vote in a democracy. And ninety nine percent agreement, and you say, I'm quoting you again. There's a very important question we always need to come back to: When do we go from the wisdom of crowds to the madness of crowds? Yes.
1: Well, it's um, you know in a the conceit in a a democracy or even a you know constitutional republic like the United States um, is somewhat majoritarian. That you know the majority is more right than wrong. You know, the fifty-one percent is more right than the forty-nine percent, and it's a way you make certain decisions. And um, and maybe if you get to larger majorities, it's it's more correct. So maybe maybe a 70, 30 vote is is um, is, a, is a really good democratic outcome. It's an overwhelming, win. But then, uh, yeah, if you're at ninety-nine point nine percent in an election, you you're in North Korea, and um, and you suspect something has. You know, it's not it's not that you've arrived at the absolute truth, but that you're in an absolutely insane totalitarian place, so there is sort of this, this 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 question about where where one goes from from one to the other. Um, you know, I think um, I think there's there's probably a sort of a you know if you sort of think of the West as having two two philosophical traditions, sort of the um, Greco-Roman classical and the um, you know Judeo-Christian, the Greco-Roman rationalist Enlightenment tradition um, is somehow that you know. Um, uh, there's some sort of community of, uh, of wise people, the Royal Society of Science in the 17th right, century, right. and uh, that, um, that, that, uh, that is, you know, that is somehow conducive to truth. And um, and I think the Judeo-Christian one is always extremely skeptical. I, uh, you know, for a biblical scholar, I would, I would sort of ask the question, is there a single incidence in which um, the unanimity of the crowd is right? I think it's always wrong. It's, you know, it's Joseph is right, his brothers are wrong. Uh, um, you know the Tower of Babel. Everybody, it's the global crowd. It's completely wrong. Um, you know, Christ is abandoned. You know,
0: Pilate begs the crowd to choose Christ to be freed, and the crowd the, the crowd it. always gets
1: it wrong. Right. So, so somehow, you know, reason tells us to believe in the wisdom of crowds. Revelation tells us to be skeptical. And so, the, it's a question: where does where does one end and the other begin?
0: All right. I'm going to quote you one more time on, on the present moment. It may be hard to define where that line is, the line you've just been describing. But I want to suggest that in all kinds of contexts, we're too far on one side, on the side that you can describe as collectivist, centralized, conformist, and just simply incorrect. Yes. In our politics, in what, give us, give us several of those contexts.
1: Well, uh, well, the, the uh, you know, I, I, in, in these comments, I went through, you know, several different examples. I'll come, but, I want to come but, to those. But, but, right. um, but they are basically, uh, um, you know, pro- probably the 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 most dramatic one over the last um, the last uh, year and a half has been has been the COVID politics, okay. where okay. Uh, where we had all kinds of um, yeah all all kinds of things that were asserted um, way too dogmatically, and um, and uh, and of course the uh, the dogmas um, then also took these sort of hairpin turns. It was it was. You know, you know, I, th- I think uh, I often say science, let's, talk about, let's say a little bit of science. Science uh, has to fight a two-front war against excess dogmatism and excess skepticism. You can't, you can't be too dogmatic, so 17th, 18th century science, you're fighting against some, you know, um, ossified Aristotelianism or maybe the dogma of the Catholic Church. And But you also can't be too skeptical. If you say, you know, I don't believe you're sitting in the chair, then we can't do science. Right. So Humean skepticism Gets to be a little bit unscientific too, and you have to somehow fight fight against both. But of course, science always thinks of itself as more fighting against dogmatism, and the scientists still think that they're in 1750 and they're the sort of deist, freethinking rationalists who you know who are fighting against the system and the power. And uh, in the sort of paradoxical mimetic inversion, they have become what they you know what you have to always choose your enemies well because you will soon be like them, and they've sort of become as Dogmatic as the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, or much worse, much because at least the Catholic Church was somewhat stable in its dogmas, and here we had these we had these hairpin turns. So February,
0: of and the February of fe- just sticking up know. for the Church, the Copernican versus Aristotelian you know, that was never dogma, st- strictly speaking. Just I'm just sticking up for the Church. We can arm wrestle about well, that later. But well,
1: I, I'm just I'm just describing <laughs> the self understanding of the scientists. <laughs> yes, of course, so. of course, okay. All and right. um, but we had these hairpin turns. It was it was hyper dogmatic. And um, also, sort of postmodern in a very unstable way. So, don't uh, wear
0: masks. Oh no, no, you must wear masks. Yes, that kind of thing. That,
1: uh, yeah, obviously. Yeah, February uh, uh, two thousand twenty. You know, and they're probably lying about it. But it was, you know, there was a mask shortage. So they told people not to wear masks, and then you had a hairpin turn. You know, October uh, two thousand twenty. Uh, Kamala Harris was telling people, you know, I will, I will, uh, I will never take a Trump vaccine, um, and then of course now everybody uh, should take or needs to get vaccinated. Um, and then, um, and then I think um, perhaps most dramatically of all, the sort of uh, the shift from the food market to the the Wuhan lab, which hasn't fully happened, but was again this this hairpin turn with uh, by uh, Stewart or Col- Colbert. I was g- can't get those two straight, but uh, but one of them sort of allowed it to happen, and then everybody couldn't lockstep shift.
0: Right, right. Now you tell you, you mention in th- these remarks that we've been talking about. A friend of yours, a friend of mine too, as far as that goes, um, Jay Bhattacharya, Could I ask you just to tell his story in brief, and why why you consider that significant? L- let me put it this way: Here's what I take you to be doing in telling that story. I take you to be saying, even in this collectivist moment, there are individuals, there, there, yes, and there are hopeful examples.
1: Yes. Um, but it's also just an example of the of the of the of the sheer insanity. Where basically, uh, he's a you know health policy uh, tenured professor at Stanford, uh, and uh, and then you know um, has always been you know, somewhat libertarian, somewhat somewhat heterodox in health policy, and uh, and then in the in the last uh, year and a half, really found his voice. And uh, and I think the um, the, the thing that um, ended up triggering people. Was um, was an article he wrote where he said um, I'm going to get the quote exactly right. It's something like quote, um, you know, um, there's no high quality evidence. A, there are no studies. There are no high quality studies that um, that prove that wearing masks is effective. Um, and um, and so he didn't say there was no evidence. He didn't say there were no studies. It was just no high quality studies. And um, and then that was of course way too much. And uh, and then you had this—you had this crazed reaction on campus, where there was, you know, a petition to get the university to to
0: slap him down, to not let
1: him talk, and uh, you know, not uh, create all these health risks by by being able to expound these incorrect ideas. And I think, yeah, I think sort of my my—that really
0: you that really is insanity because in, in a yeah, sane moment, he said nothing that was not unreasonable, unscientific. His demeanor is always perfectly rational. Correct. And,
1: no, it's it, it's it's um it's a very it's in some sense a very technical abstruse point. It's not. Right. This it's is not a clash of ideologies. It's not a crazy anti masking just... It's just no high quality study, um and uh and it was so it was a it, but of course it was it was the very uh, nuanced nature of it that made it uh, so dangerous because we're supposed to um, think in very clean ideological bright line. Uh, terms and uh, Subtlety I, is I, not I, I, have, I have this. I have this shortcut suspicion that um, things. You know, we always need more surface area for debate. But if you're not allowed to say something, I have a suspicion not only that you should be allowed to say it, but that it's simply true. And so I suspect that if uh, you a know, I, 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 I haven't examined are there high quality studies or not. But um, but uh, the fact that you have to silence somebody rather than that you just point to a high quality study suggests to me that it's simply true.
0: That's my my shortcut heuristic. Quotation, direct quotation. Dr. Anthony Fauci in an interview just last month, we're recording this in December, this is from an interview in November, quote, when people criticize me, Anthony Fauci, Mm -hmm. when people criticize me, they are really criticizing science because I represent science, close quote. What would you say to Dr. Fauci?
1: Well, it's, um, it's, it's obviously if we if we say that what you're saying is on some level it's literally true, but then science means something very different from again what we thought of as this anti dogmatic, you know,
0: free, process, of open process of exploration debate process of exploration,
1: and uh, it has it has become the opposite, and it it may but it, you know it is um, it is probably that he's actually uh, the case that he's kind of true about. Um, a lot of what goes under the name of science and that when people invoke science, they are trying to, you know, they're trying to shut off debate. And if something is real science, you don't need to call it science. It's physics and chemistry. It's not physical science or chemical science. Um, And then on the other hand, we have things like, let's say, climate science or political science. Where, um, you stick
0: the word science in precisely because it isn't scientific. It's
1: it's like a tell in poker that you're exaggerating because um, it's it's not quite there. So that's that's sort of the uh, that's that's certainly the, the the minimum suspicion. But it's yeah, it's it's I mean, it's like you know it's like those banners or you know this household we believe in science or all these things where right. that, that doesn't seem like science with a capital S seems to be like the the um, antonym of science with a lowercase s.
0: Right. Right. All right. Another instance of collective madness. If I'm interpreting your remarks correctly, this is quoting you once again. On most things, President Biden doesn't get blamed enough, but maybe on Afghanistan, he gets blamed too much. Close quote. Well,
1: we had a we had this super um, you know chaotic um, end to the Afghanistan uh, adventure where. Uh, you know the, the retreat turned into an unmitigated route and um, and there, I think there's sort of two different ways you can think of it. One is that you know one is that there was sort of these tactics they got wrong. They should have secured the air force base. So they should have done it more gradual. There was all these sort of tactical mistakes, um, and in that case, if it was tactics, then that's probably you know on the Biden administration and the you know and right. the National Security Council and that whole set of people. But um, but the view I have is that it was probably the the thing that really um uh made a um a good ending in afghanistan impossible was the twenty years of epistemic closure of the lies we were telling ourselves about it and they were they were these lies about um you know about nation building that everything was going you know was going uh wonderfully you know in, in these in, the, in this place and it was just you know you were somewhere in cloud c- cuckoo land it was just it was just a, a completely crazed form of epistemic uh closure. I you know I went I went through, you know, I tried to come up with, you know, what were some of the more absurd instances of this. there was obviously there I think a lot of them were like you know episodes from the onion where you know the last president of Afghanistan had you know gotten a PhD on sort of you know having more transparency and honesty and you know emerging market governance and then he was just you know a kleptocrat who was not stealing hundred percent, not ninety eight percent, but was hundred percent of the money. Um you know so there's sort of something absurd about that. There was there was, um, you know, there was uh, there was one one YouTube video I found. Um, it was a BBC um, episode on it was some nonprofit NGO, probably all again subsidized by by the by the West, which was um, giving art lessons to Afghan Afghan people. And it was sort of this postmodern lesson on Duchamp's the toilet. Where it was this uh, absurdist nihilist thing from a hundred years ago, where this artist put a toilet in an art gallery and said, you know, art is whatever I say it is. And you had this Pashto translator, and these Afghan people had no clue. But that's sort of that's sort of what the what the nation building looked and like. And it was
0: funded and, funded by the state by our State Department, presumably. And or, yeah,
1: pro- probably yeah, it was probably. all, all you know, who, who, But it was, it was the the whole thing was uh, you know was was one one version of this after another. I you know I, there were very I mean there were various dissenting voices. The the, the one I, I gave, which who was you know. Um, Maybe it was too late and Cold. not articulate the right way was, was was President Trump.
0: I want to quote you on this because you
1: yeah you, I, you, you use the language. I don't want to use it.
0: I, I, I'm not going to use the language. Well, we'll see what the, how, we, how we handle this. This is you talking about Donald Trump. And you're citing him for his individualism. Maybe it was already too late. But two years ago, President Trump had a description of what was going on in Afghanistan that was, I believe, fundamentally correct. I will quote him. And then you do quote him. Afghanistan is an expletive country. Close quote. And you write that, or you say that was perhaps not a rigorous scientific description, and it was certainly not a very nice thing to say. And then you make a point that I consider, I consider, arresting, arresting, and about as mo- as important a point as anybody could possibly make, at least about the present moment quoting you again, but when you limit yourself to saying things that are very nice, you can't actually talk about anything at all. Yes. And c- certainly... Explain that. Well, explain that and explain why Trump in this case somehow got it right, crude, loutish, all...
1: If it's a completely failed country and we can't say that, then, then, we are, then our description is, is, is very, very far off. There probably are times when, you know, the nice things are close to reality. But if you're forced to say nice things, um, it's probably the case that somehow the truth is, is 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 very far from nice, and you're 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 very far from it. And that's that's what you know. You can think of a lot of political correctness as a as a misdirected form of politeness that uh, that you know ended up in catastrophe in Afghanistan.
0: If this is a point you didn't touch on in your remarks, but I'm, something tells me you'll have plenty to say about it, even so journalism, American journalism if you think back to Soviet Russia in the thirties and one journalist after another was coming back from visits to Russia and lying to yep. the public saying i we have seen the future yep. and it works Stevens or whoever said yes that. Yeah. yes but there were a couple of journalists who came back and told the truth. Malcolm Muggridge went across mm-hmm. and then came back and wrote for The Guardian, which was a a left-wing newspaper in those days and he told the truth that it was horrible, that people were being killed, that there was starvation. He told the truth. I can't, and Afghanistan was easy to reach. You just put in an application to the, to the Pentagon and they send journalists over and we didn't have anybody. I mean, one, one mode in which it could have been done would have been to do a kind of PJ O'Rourke or a Hunter Thompson approach where you just send somebody over there and do gonzo journalism on the corruption and the chief yep. source of domestic cash is poppy growing and, and it didn't happen. Yeah, nobody nobody was, told the truth. Why? Well, you
1: didn't even tell the lies. You just said nothing, right? If you, if you look at how much it, it was, you know, probably, probably if you, you know, um, you know, to the extent you talked about it, it was this inside DC, politically correct, overly polite conversation. The, the outside DC thing wasn't even that. It was you didn't talk about it at all. I think there were, you know, there were a few things. There was the, you know, there was the there was the you know, I think Russia's a bad country. I, I, but there was the, the I think incorrect theory that Russia was paying bounties on American soldiers right. to gin up our resolve. There
0: was um, there were these But that became that that became reported only because they used it against Trump.
1: Yes, but it was but again but it, was, it was it was still it something. Was more about Russia. It was barely but
0: even about Afghanistan. Right, right, right.
1: And but but the uh, the larger reality was that for um, you know, quite some time, it even predated Trump. People weren't even talking about it, mm-hmm. and so the you know, the safest way, and you know, if you if you if you if you have to lie too directly, that itself is pretty dangerous, and you know if, if you if you have to give reports on how wonderful Afghanistan is, that might not quite work, and it's, it's probably best not even to talk about it. All right.
0: So this notion that if you if you can only speak about something in nice terms, you really can't talk about it at all. I just want to come come back. I want to press you on that point. Just briefly. So here's what we hear all the time on universities, among other places. And as I said in the introduction, you've just co-taught a course here at Stanford this past autumn. Avoid triggers. Don't offend anybody. Say anything you want to, but remain civil. Uh, Again, say, say anything you want to, but just bear in mind that this is a community and there are people whose feelings are at stake here. And would you say that 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 kind of guidance, that line of argument, actually represents an attack on freedom of speech.
1: Oh, ab- absolutely, and of course, the, you know, it's it's not just a university context. It's also, you know, sort of large woke corporations. It is, um, it is, um, you know, it's probably um, yeah. There are all sorts of other contexts where, um, where, uh, where you have that. It's. Um, I, th- I think it's often. I don't even judge the people too much. It's individually quite rational not to uh, stick your neck out in, in these contexts, but, it's, but it gets us collectively to, to a really bad place.
0: All right. Um, new topic here. I'm going to quote you again to set this up. One more example of the sort of totalitarian conformity that's preventing us from asking critical questions, from course correcting, from fixing problems. I'm thinking of our most sacred deep state institution of all, the Federal Reserve. Close quote. Explain.
1: Uh, well, um, their job well, is just to maintain well, well, the currency. Well, um, oh. COVID is this weird disease. where Maybe we should listen to healthcare experts. Afghanistan, this faraway country, we don't know much about. But um, inflation is um, is Shows something the that's store. common sense that everybody can see in the in the gas bill, the grocery bill, and um, and uh, and and so this is and maybe it's it started to shift the last few weeks, but sort of the you know, it was again the sort of extraordinary case of epistemic closure, where it seems like the Fed was the last institution that was able to register, you know, the worst inflation in the, since the 1970s. That's you know, starting to to really accelerate in in this country.
0: Anybody who bought a gallon of milk knew, this was, knew more about inflation than and, Jerome and Powell, in, the chairman. In some ways, of the Fed. it's more
1: extreme one because this is one where it's just common sense. And you know, do do you? Do you, do, you, do you trust what you see on the bill or do you trust what the experts are telling you? So this one is, 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 a, is a really crazy one and then of course, you know, the, the Fed is in some sense our most, yeah, our most sacred institution so if, if that, uh, you know, if there's something going wrong there, you know, there are a lot it's of questions you have everywhere. to ask.
0: So let me ask you about a piece of um, recent intellectual history. When you were an undergraduate here and then a law school student, Milton Friedman was still up. Mm-hmm. and writing and doing research as a fellow yes. at the Hoover Institution. And I got to know, I was fortunate enough to be able to get to know his office and mine were on the same floor. Actually, this is when you and I got to know each other. And as far as I could tell in those days, Milton Friedman did something that very rarely happens in intellectual life. He won. He won. Inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon yes. was his great statement. and the the free market approach, the importance of a stable currency. His entire intellectual critique of the 60s and 70s was embraced, as best I could tell, in academia all across the country. And now he's only been dead, I think, 15, 16 years in that range. It's less than two decades. It is almost as if Milton Friedman had never been born. I'm going to quote you again. We have a modern monetary theory to which everyone has gravitated yes. at precisely the moment when it needs to be questioned and challenged." Close quote. How is it that an entire and supremely rational th- I, I, I guess my respect for economics as a discipline is A, it's rational, but B, it's also tremendously empirical when it's practiced correctly. Milton's book, Monetary History of the United States, was a history mm-hmm. of, of something real. Okay. How is it that such a discipline can toss out the progress that that entire school of thought made, and replace it with, as you say, this new monetary theory. Everybody well, went leaping to this new monetary theory. Well, there's there's, theory. So,
1: there's something about economics that's also always risks of it, it risks of being very politicized because you know if you can if you can twist the economic answers a little bit, then um, you can you can push things um, in a in a very strange direction, and you know I, I suppose look I think the inflation question is always a little bit more complicated than. Than um, the 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 Milton Friedman version you you, you describe, and, and certainly um, there was he a, wrote academic work, and was, he wrote there his there columns was, for the, Newsweek, He was popularizing. Look, there was a there was a conservative um, version of the Milton Friedman arguments a decade ago in the form of the Tea Party, where you know right. Obama's um, and and the, the Obama Fed are printing money and they're running you know eight hundred billion trillion dollar deficits, and that's too much, and that's going to Generate inflation, and it never actually showed up. And so, you know, there was, you know, there's so the thing about economics is that it's it's not that precise a science, and there's always, you know, there's there's there's, there's some, some slippage. And it turned out no, you know, the credit system was so busted, the banks were so busted. And one of the ways you create money is not just through um, growing the money supply, but it's through the credit system working. And the, the impairment of the credit system was about as was about offset by the the extra money printing, and that's why the you know the Bernanke Fed. You know, it, it roughly worked, even though the Tea Party was more more wrong than right in in retrospect. Mm-hmm. But then, um, then when you fast forward a decade, um, you know it would be a very mistaken lesson to say that therefore you could do anything you wanted to. Monetary de- policy doesn't matter. You can print as much money as you want. You can have deficits as big as you want. You can um, you can make the money high velocity. You know the the money that Bernanke printed went into banks and didn't get lent out, so it was low velocity money. If you send checks to people, that's high-velocity money, which is more inflationary. And so, when you, yeah, when you violate everything, um, you know, economics isn't an, an, isn't an exact science, but it's it's exact enough. It knows that something. That's going to go very wrong. All right. And and then of course, the the political layer is, um, you know, they, they they probably have a look-ahead function where if at the Fed you say you know we have to stop the money printing to stop the inflation, but then we're going to go back into a recession because of all the you know, COVID restrictions or whatnot. Um, you know, you're not supposed to do that, and then you have to grab onto something like MMT to to justify the whole thing. And then there is, again, the striking thing is there seems to be no room for for violent dissent. So it's 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 it's, it's again on the, you know, on the Fed side, maybe they could have gotten to the exact same decisions we got to over the last. Year or two, but if there was like a really vigorous descent, you know, this is this is crazy. This is inflationary. That itself but would reassure sh- me.
0: Right, the, right. But there certainly was no one on the Fed making that argument.
1: No, nobody. I mean, maybe there were some super subtle ways, but right. uh, effectively, no one was making
0: that argument. Quoting you again, the single thing that is telling us the hour is late for fiat money, paper money backed by nothing but the goodwill of the federal government good faith and credit as the saying goes of the federal government, that the hours late for fiat money and central banks is cryptocurrency and Bitcoin in particular. A third individual hero against the collective is Satoshi Nakamoto. First of all, I'm a little, I, I'm wait, as you know, this is not my field. Mm-hmm. I thought Satoshi Nakamoto was a sort of mythical legendary, nobody actually knows whether this person really exists, is that wrong?
1: Well, somebody created Bitcoin.
0: Oh, and we might as well call him Satoshi. And, and, um, Satoshi. and
1: he wrote all these papers. And I, I believe the first the first Bitcoin payment was from Satoshi
0: to to one other okay. person. Okay, oh, so we so, do know there was an individual. There
1: was an individual. There's a genesis block of one million um, Bitcoin that are presumably held by that individual, which you know at fifty thousand dollars a Bitcoin would be worth fifty fifty billion dollars. And so there is there is a somewhat strange mystery of at the at the heart of the Bitcoin phenomenon, which is still you know the largest so we still cryptocurrency, don't,
0: this person is still anonymous. We don't know
1: who the founder, we don't know who the creator was, and it's it's sort of um, you know it's this hidden anonymous individual, and um, and I think you know I anyway there's there's a lot of different things one can say about it, but uh, but um, if if you think of Bitcoin, you can think of it as a revolutionary um, anti fiat money thing. Um, you, can, uh, you can say it's, it's, a, it's, again, a late warning, like, uh, like President Trump's warning on Afghanistan. It's not very nice, it's not very polite, but it's, uh, it's like this is a canary in the coal mine right. and it's telling you the hour is very late and you better do something. And so, it, you know, it's, you, but uh, I, think, I think we
0: ignored it at our, our peril. Okay, so now let me ask you a couple of questions that arise from genuine perplexity on my part, because, again, as you know, I live here, but but I am not of this world in some way, I know, you know more of them. I know a lot of young entrepreneurs who made a packet of money when Palantir went public and many of them bought Bitcoin. And I've had conversations with a couple and they say, well, inflation is just going to eat away at the value of the dollar, Bitcoin is probably, it's extremely volatile, but if you think in terms of a decade, it's a much safer bet, say they. Okay. And then I just go check. And um, it's true that over the last, that Bitcoin has gone up and up and up in value. But uh, over, the, over the last six months, say, 10-year treasuries, the yield on 10-year treasuries has fallen from 1.5 to 1.35%. In other words, if people are genuine, I, this is economics 101, which is about as far as my formal economics ever went, and we were always taught that the market for the treasury bills, for for 10-year treasuries, is the deepest, richest, most sophisticated market on planet Earth. And that market doesn't seem to be flashing even an amber light, let alone a red light, about inflation. So what what, what am I missing here? Or what are the markets missing? Well, it's always um,
1: Well, look, it's possible that the, the markets in this case are still right and there's no inflation coming. But, um, but the other suggestion I would have would be that uh, it, it, maybe it's a broken market where the uh, the deficit is about as big as the amount of QE the Fed is doing, and so in some sense the Fed is um, is buying up all these um, all these uh, all these all these bonds. And so if you if you have inflation, the inflation can show up. You know, you expect it to fl- show up in real assets. So, you know, house prices are up 20 percent year on year in the U.S. It can show up in collectibles, art, cars, you know, baseball cards. Um, certainly one place it can show up initially is in the stock market. Um, cryptocurrency is another place where it's the new gold. But it can also show up, it can even show up in bonds. There's all this extra money and some of the extra money goes into the bond market. And so if it's, if it's a slightly broken market because the Fed is doing as much QE as you need, um, it's, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens to the bond prices when they, when they stop printing the money and you have these big deficits. Then, then, you'll get, then you'll get a real sense of the clearing.
0: Okay. You just gave me an education and terrified me. That makes only too much sense. Um, SEC Chairman Gary Gensler earlier this month, quote, the American public is buying, selling and lending crypto on platforms where there are significant gaps in investor protection. If we don't address these issues, we the feds don't address these issues, a lot of people Will be hurt. Close quote. In other words, move the very regulatory regime that Bitcoin holders are attempting to escape. Many of them, just move that, put that same mattress on top of Bitcoin, the regulatory mattress on top of that market. How do you reply to Gary Gensler? Well, even if
1: even if all of that's true, it's uh, it's maybe still better than the alternative, which is to um, have 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 your wealth in fiat money. If you have, you know, if you have a world of, let's say, zero percent interest rates and two percent inflation, which we had, you know, under, under Obama, that's still over a course of five years. That's a ten percent confiscation of your of your money, which is like the Cyprus type confiscation in Europe that was was scandalous and shocking. All of a sudden, you know, people's bank accounts got cut by ten percent. We just do it. We don't do it nominally. We do it slowly with with real things. And then, of course, this last year where the inflation six percent and the rates are still zero. Um, it's actually a 6% confiscation of, 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 of people's cash. And so, um, so yes, I, I, I don't know, it's, it's sort of, I'm, I'm tempted to say something like, you know, physician heal thyself.
0: All right, what is to be done? Um, again, the collective versus the individual, you speak about the last time you attended the World Economic Forum in Davos, which I think was 2015, you got sick of it a long time ago. 20, 2013 was 2013, last time. 2013, even longer ago, all right, I'm quoting you. People were there only in their capacity as representatives of corporations or governments or NGOs. It really hit me; there were simply no individuals in the room. Close quote.
1: Yeah, it's it's um, well, if you, yes, if you sort of think of again, there probably are some individuals, but the the, the overall the overall sense that Davos, um, the self understanding is this is the government of the future, and it will be a global government, and it will be um, you know, and and you will be you can be in it to the extent you're a proxy for a larger structure which is um, which is like a big corporation, a big government, a big nonprofit, but um, but an individual and then and then these people somehow all get to this wisdom of crowds consensus that seems, you know, on some level sort of the center left politically correct thing that you know there's sort of you know I had a which is sort of the you know that's the Davos's dumb version the Davos's clever version is that people say the exact opposite of what they believe and it's all like, you know, it's all a reputation laundering operation for people trying to escape from failed third world countries. But, um, but uh, it, is, um, it is somehow, it is not a truth seeking place. It's not a place where we have, you know, maximum surface area of debate. And if that's, if that's the future, if Davos represents the future. It might, be, it might be efficient, it might, you know, it might work you know, as a, having a global market, it might be, might be good to have certain types of global governance, but what I don't like about it is that um, it's a world with, uh, with no dissenting views. And um, I don't believe we're at the end of history where we simply know the truth. Mm. And until we're at the end of history, you need to have dissent, you need to have hetero- heterodox views to try to figure things
0: out. China. Mm. I'm quoting you again, China has gone from bad to worse, from a communist regime to a worse communist regime in that there are simply no individuals allowed. Anybody who deviates from the party line gets crushed. Close quote. Well, yes, but at the same time, so goes the argument, the Chinese have lifted six or 700 million people out of poverty, that the system of freedom and individual liberties that you and I cherish It's the past. The Chinese have invented a new model of tight central control combined with free markets, and that's the future. Ray Dalio of Bridgewater, one of the richest men in America. He's invested heavily in China. When asked about Chinese uh, human rights violations, I'm paraphrasing him, I I don't want to be unfair to him, but he said in effect, it's like a family in China and they're, they're, they're strict parents. We're too permissive, they're strict parents. So he spoke with real admiration not just of investment opportunities, but of the system that's making them possible, to which you reply, how?
1: Well, Peter, it seems to me you're making the historicist argument on China that it's just these inevitable forces of history mm-hmm. that, uh, that drive everything, and something like this might have been true of the China from 89 to 2013, where they looked at the Soviet Union, and I think the Chinese ideology was, we're not going to be the Soviet Union. We're going to have perestroika, without glasnost. And um, it
0: was... We the party will retain control. We the party
1: with some elements of a free market, some elements of an efficient, more efficient economy, but, um, but we'll, we'll continue to have Leninist political control even if we don't have Marxist economics. Um, but I, I think the, um, the way I would frame China since 2013 is that um, it's very different. It is, uh, Putin is a positive role model. For Xi, rather than the Soviet Union being a negative role model for China, and uh, it's um, you know not sure Putin's been great for Russia, but he gets to be president until 2036. It's working for him individually, and so uh, I think China works for exactly one individual, Mr. Xi, um, and uh, and and then it doesn't work for anybody else anymore. And and certainly there's a large class of you know of um, of successful individuals who have gotten clobbered this last year, the Jack Ma story wow. is, is 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 the uh, is the most remarkable one.
0: And, um, and Jack Ma, Jack Ma, the founder of Alibaba, who criticized the Chinese regulatory regime, as I understand the yes. story, and then simply disappeared. Now he's appeared. They didn't. They don't. I mean, he's still alive. He's appeared on a trip yes. recently, last couple of weeks. But he's let's put it this way: he's fallen silent.
1: Yes. And there's been a way that you know the tech companies have generally gotten clobbered. And um, and it is it is just a it 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 is just there are no individuals allowed, there no you know, maybe no wealthy people allowed. We are um, you know it is it is back to a far more totalitarian playbook. Um, and so so whatever worked about the Chinese development path in the 70s, eighties, nineties, I feel is very different. You know, there's there is there's probably some development where you can you can you can copy advanced countries and maybe copying is something you can do <clears throat> in a not very free society um, but then once you you get to the frontier and you have to do new things that's 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 a very very tricky question so, Peter what it, it, it just it, 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 you know it seems to me that China is um, is sort of like a much worse version of Japan like Japan wasn't the freest country it was a culturally weird place it was not a totalitarian communist country but for many decades, it had a great model of copying and catching up, and then by the '80s, it sort of had caught up, and then it hit the wall. And uh, and uh, China just seems like a much more deranged, dysfunctional version of of Japan.
0: Remind me of the year you published Zero to One, your book Zero to One. 2014. All right, 2014. So in 2014, in Zero to One, on the first or second page, as I recall, you argue. When it comes to it, really China does not know, in 2014, as of 2014, China did not know how to do zero to one. It did not know how to do what we do in Silicon Valley, which is really innovate, start with nothing and come up with something that didn't exist before. Is that still the case? Are you worried about, I mean, again, this is not my world, but I hear people concerned about the Chinese catching up and overtaking us in AI, for example. Have they achieved the capacity to go from zero to one now under this regime? You have to look at um, you have to look at a whole series of different technological verticals. So
1: it's a question about five G with um, um, Huawei. You have to look at um, you have to look at the hypersonic missiles. There's a whole bunch of crazy stuff in space. So there's sort of a you know there are a series of different verticals, and then there's of course the the AI one my my sense is that for the most part they have not overtaken us there is a geopolitical problem for the US if they just catch up to us china if you get to, if you get to the same per capita gdp the same technological level of the us so they copy everything they don't invent anything but you have a country with four times the people four times the gdp four times the military it will become you know the dominant superpower um so uh so i think there, there's a certain sense in which um, it was not clear that China really needed to innovate, um, and maybe it just needed to copy uh, in order to sort of get to get to some kind of kind of world domination. Um, but all that being said, that was that was, that, that was sort of my view circa 2014. But fast forward to 2021, it feels like it's it's really gone haywire. Where uh, it is, you know, it's it's um, it, you always have the Leninist structures. They've tightened those up, and uh, and we're actually going back to some kind of Marxist economy, um, and um, it is uh, it is it is very strange how it, you know, it's become you know the the you know the the extreme version a, a historian um, told me the other day was that he thought Xi was the best thing happening to the West because he was sabotaging China in every way possible. They're getting in their own and way He again. was he was just turning it into North Korea, which again is too extreme, but. Uh, but there is sort of a question, you know, is it what is the internal logic of totalitarianism that breaks it? You know, what stops it from, um, you know, killing more people and going ever crazier? There were, you know, there were ways it de-escalated after the Cultural Revolution, after Stalin, but, uh, but there also can be a totalitarian logic of intensification, escalation, and it seems to be in that right now, and it's not obvious where that stops, mm. and people have, you know, Xi's been in power for, for eight years since 2013, and every year, people have said, you know, it's about, to, you know, there's an anti-corruption campaign that was he's just made cleaned his things point, up, he's and, control it's, and control. then right. it's going to go back to normal, and then um, and then every year it has actually intensified. Hmm.
0: Back to this country for closing questions. Um, again, I'm going to quote your remarks to the Atlas Society: The United States has this very fundamental choice. Are we going to become like China? Are we going to have some sort of fake totalitarian efficiency in which we crush individuals? Or will we find a way back to really celebrating individuals? So, how do we find our way back? Will we find, I want to get to that. But there's a kind of prior question. How do we go from ticker-tick parades for astronauts Mm -hmm. and General of the Army Eisenhower and Fleet Admiral Halsey Halsey, to ticker tape parades for collectives, for, for groups. How did it happen that in this country founded on notions of liberty with this elaborate structure of countervailing power structures in the government itself to prevent individual liberty? How did it happen that we reached such a collectivist moment? Oh, that's always hard.
1: That's so hard to say. I'm just, I'm just saying we should, um, we should acknowledge that something like that happened. Something went wrong, and we're here. And I can look at the ticker tape trades. I don't know who, who sets them up. I don't know who selects the people. But something went wrong. And I want to say that it was not just an idiosyncratic thing. It's something that's symptomatic of a bigger problem. I, I think if you could, if you could solve the ticker tape pr- problem, I suspect you will have. Done a big step towards solving the bigger one. So, uh, so my, you know, my, my, my sort of joking version was you should have a ticker tape for Satoshi, even if he doesn't show up. And, um, and if, if, if you could do that, wow, we are, we're living in a country that's um, so much healthier. It's on the, way back. On it's way, on the back. way back. And then it's, and maybe it's just it's, some committee in New York City, maybe the mayor's office, but it's just like a whole bunch of people that have to sign off on it. And if you got all of them to sign off, We'd be in a different world. And that's why we'll send that's a, why I
0: think that's you know, it's it's just it's just symbolic, but symbols are important. We'll we'll send a copy of this interview to the new to the incoming mayor Eric Adams in New York, who takes office on January 1st, I think. Um so a couple more questions. 70s in this country decline, and then in the 80s things turn around astonishingly quickly. Economic expansion, rebuilding the military the courage to bring new kinds of pressures to bear on the Soviet Union such that in just 10 years from 79 to 89, you go from the national humiliation of the Iranian hostage Mm -hmm. crisis to the fall of the Berlin Wall, to victory Mm -hmm. in the Cold War. Do Do we have the mechanisms in place including the human capital, including I suppose, what would you say, even intellectual and political courage? Do we have it within ourselves to make such a kind of comeback? Is, there, is, is renewal possible or is this just decline? This happened to Rome, it happened to Britain, it happens to all great countries, it's happening to us. Well, I'm, I'm anti-historicist because historicism
1: says that it's all these tectonic plates that shift and it's these impersonal historic forces. And I, I believe it's always individuals that matter. You believe in free will. And free will and it's up to us. You know, there's 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 certainly a way that you could, you know, uh, there was you know there's a talking point where people like to say the Biden administration is like the second coming of FDR, and it feels it feels in some ways like the extreme opposite of FDR. Um, it feels you know very low agency, which Five as a as Carter. a conservative libertarian, I'm actually don't mind too much, but um, but uh, but um, but somehow um, it is probably it would be healthier if. Biden were the second coming of FDR.
0: Last question, you're a Stanford alum. Again, for that matter, you taught a course here at Stanford to undergraduates just this past fall. Imagine a Stanford undergraduate who agrees with every word you've said during this conversation. And by the way, I know such undergraduates, there are a lot of them around, who sees the pressures for conformism, the corruption of science, the soft, but invidious suppression of speech. What can that undergraduate do? What's your advice to that undergraduate? What can that undergraduate do to help this country find its way back to celebrating individuals? Or would your advice be, no, 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 even the way you're framing that question is a temptation. Don't think about public life. Go found a company in Silicon Valley. That's where individualism still matters and can still succeed at the level of the entrepreneur in this particular economic ecosystem. Well, I, th- I think um, I think we have you know a
1: wide range of, of things people can do. You can start companies. You can um, I think uh, I think um, there is such a shortage of talented people in politics or government that that probably there's room for more people to do that. So I think there's a I think there's a there's a Wide range, and we are we're in a society where it feels like everything is on autopilot. That you're becoming an ever smaller cog in an ever bigger machine, and, and I would
0: as strongly, an investor, you look at this. I would and see take opportunity. I would take the
1: opposite bet on that. Specific advice I can't give since that that would you know if I if I, if I give some sort of categorical advice, everybody should do X. That's <laughs> that's the most anti-individualistic thing imaginable.
0: All right, Peter Thiel, investor, author, libertarian, and we may as well use the old-fashioned word patriot. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. For Uncommon Knowledge, the Hoover Institution, and Fox Nation, I'm Peter Robinson.